during this time in our service, uh, we take some uh, moments to hear God's word read to us and then preach to us, because we really do believe that God's word has power, that it, it matters, that its words matter, and can actually change our lives for the good. And so we give some time to that. So this morning, as we come to God's word, I want to invite Asha to read it for us. Today's reading is from 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. Um, it's found on page 995 of the Black Bibles. If you're able, please stand during the reading of the word. <clears throat> Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of, for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here ends the reading. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that in these moments, your spirit would speak to our hearts, that these words uh, in the scriptures would not be uh, dead to us, but that they would come alive to us and grip our hearts. Uh, these words, every word is infallible. It is it's useful for teaching. It's useful for us to believe and to apply in our lives. And so we pray that you would make these very words, these few verses in 2 Timothy, come alive to us. We pray that we would fight against the urge to be distracted, that we would fight against the urge to push back on what your word says, that, oh Lord, you would conquer our hearts, that you would convince us that these words, these very words are true so that we might live rightly, believe rightly, and live amongst one another rightly. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, most of us, uh, if not all of us to some level, uh, have a desire to please one another, to have people think well of us. Uh, even if you're the type to say, 
I don't really care what you think or other people think of me. You still want people to know that you don't care about what they think of you. Right? No matter how, what you say, you and I have this desire to be pleased uh, and liked by those people around us, people perhaps in this very room. Uh, I myself, perhaps like many of you, grew up in an environment that was based largely on what people in the wider community thought about me and uh, what they expected of me. Uh, we were rightly, respectfully uh, standing when folks who were older walked into a room. Uh, we actually chose entire life paths that bring the family honor, things like marriage and what you do with your life based on what, what was best for our community and family. Uh, we, in fact, tried to avoid things that would bring shame and dishonor to our community and family. Uh, whether in my environment or in yours, we hold a lot of value in what people think of us, and we naturally want to be liked by all. Whether we admit it or not, we want to live in a world where people like us, people approve of us, people think well of us. As I was reading this week, I came across the biography of the late preacher William Sangster, uh, and he had a biography that was written by his son. Uh, this preacher lived and died in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, and in the biography that his son wrote, he wrote of this account of his first pastoral assignment fresh out of seminary. His dad's leaving seminary, goes into his first pastoral assignment, a brilliant man, well-respected by all. He writes that in his father's first meeting with that church, his first pastoral assignment, the members were anxious to tell this young minister what was what, how things happened here, the, the business of the church. And so as each department leader proceeded to tell him what was expected of him, stressing the importance of their particular department and making it clear that, quote, the kingdom of heaven was at hand only if Sangster devoted his chief energy to their particular department, uh, this, this tension-filled room with long speeches made it impossible for Sangster to even give an adequate reply constantly, person after person, telling him what they expect of him, what, what he needs to do for their church and for the department. So finally, Sangster, in the midst of all this, stood up and said, I thank you for your advice. I will try to please you all, but I shall try most of all to please God. And the meeting was over, everyone was silent, and he walked out of the room. Can I ask you, what is most important? Uh, perhaps better phrased for us today, who is most important? As one preacher has said, the bottom line of Christian life and ministry is to please God in everything that you do. Ultimately, the only thing that truly matters is whether or not you will be able to end your life and ministry by hearing the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Whoever we aim to please and hope to think well of us, we would do eternally well. And 2 Timothy wants to show us we would do eternally well to always and to first consider what the Lord thinks of us. Eternally well to consider first and always what the Lord thinks of us. In fact, no matter what those around us may think, it matters only what God thinks of us, and if he thinks well of us, then nothing else matters. And so this morning, 
We turn to 2 Timothy to be reminded of these things we often forget in a world filled with people, in a world filled with demands and expectations and approval and nods. And so this morning, as we consider the text before us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is a word to all who know and love Christ. As we have already said in in this book of 2 Timothy, this letter is primarily written to young Timothy by Paul as he pastors this church in Ephesus. And so while it's a letter addressed to this young pastor, these are undoubtedly words worthy of all of our hearing today to Sunday school teachers and to GCM leaders, to ministry leads and volunteers, to parents, to sons, to daughters, to all who desire to live the Christian life. And if you don't live the Christian life today, to hear even what the gospel calls us to. These things, these things are worthy of our hearing. In fact, that is how Paul begins this section of 2 Timothy 2, beginning at verse 14, by saying these things. He says in verse 14, Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. What are the these things that Paul is talking about? It's what he's been writing in this letter. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It it is what's just come before in the previous section we considered even last week. It's about sound doctrine and right teaching. Uh, Paul is trying to convey to us that a faithful preacher, teacher, leader, parent, Christian is always to convey these things, sound doctrine and not our things, personal opinions, political leanings, trendy theology, self-help advice. Paul is bringing us back, even today for Seven Mile Road, for us to bring us back and say, be about these things. No other thing. Be about these things. It will be these things that will last beyond our earthly years. These are the things worth saying and repeating over and over again. Like Paul who repeats often what is true and essential, the risen Christ who is crucified, risen for us. Like the hymn writer writes, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. These things are worthy of repeating and saying over and over again, far above what you and I could ever utter with our lips. These things are worthy of our hearing and believing. Last week, uh, we were called to remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus as good soldiers. You remember the three metaphors used by Paul to be good soldiers, athletes, and farmers. This week, our passage continues that call but turns the focus toward remaining faithful by living rightly in the face of false teaching, false doctrine. And our passage this morning actually calls us to three more metaphors. So you had athlete, farmer, soldier in the previous section, and this passage this morning calls us to three more metaphors that will give us the outline for our text today. Uh, Those three metaphors are this. Worker, vessel, and servant. To expound on that a bit, the first, the approved and unashamed worker, two, the clean and useful vessel, and three, the Lord's servant. First, the approved and unashamed worker. We'll find that in verses 14 to 19 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, We'll spend most of our time today in this section and then sort of quickly go through the next two. And so let's read from verse 14 again. Remind them of these things, 
and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Uh, as you read this passage, if you've studied it even in GCM this week or heard it this morning, a repeated theme, a few repeated words in this passage is Paul's concern with words. Uh, what kind of words you're speaking, when you're speaking them, what, what the quality of words are. He's very concerned in this passage over and over again with words. He says in different ways, don't quarrel about words. He says, rightly handle the word of truth. Uh, avoid irreverent babble. Have nothing to do with ignorant controversies. I, I love how some other older translations puts Paul's frank words. It says, avoid stupid and foolish talk. Just don't talk stupid. Just avoid everything stupid. Just don't do it. It's, it's not beneficial to you. Just don't speak in stupid and foolish ways. Uh, it's not that Paul wants to avoid hard conversations or to avoid controversies that are even plaguing the surrounding community and perhaps the church. Uh, because if you consider what the scriptures are, what the gospels are, the very content of this book is by nature controversial. Because it goes against the fabric and nature of all the things that the world would say is true and, and right. And so Paul is not trying to avoid controversial or hard conversations. But Paul is saying that there are some conversations that are helpful. And there are some conversations that are just not helpful at all. Yeah, we'll touch on what those things are more later. Reading from verse 15, continuing on. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul, in this section, is instructing Timothy to put his work in. Notice the word worker, to be a hard worker who gives it his all. And he says to work hard particularly in what? In handling the word of truth. He's telling young Timothy and to us, ministry that bears the name of the Lord, deserves your best. He says, do your best. Give it all that you've got. Don't, don't be lazy in it. Give, give Christian ministry, give this work that deals with God's word and the, the souls of people your best. It deserves your best. It's hard work. It's what Paul says in Colossians 1.29, For this I toil and I struggle. It's with blood, sweat, and tears that you invest your life into this, not in a half-baked kind of way. This is all that you're living for. And Paul is saying, don't, don't bail out on this. Don't just go in halfway. He's saying, give it all that you've got. Do your best. What, what makes this work so hard? You've got to ask. It's, it's hard work, right? There, there's nothing physical about it, it doesn't seem. It doesn't seem like you're exerting much energy. What makes this work so hard? It's hard work to rightly understand what God's word is saying and then be able to present it to one another, perhaps from a pulpit or in a classroom or even in your own home in an understandable and helpful way. It's hard work to be able to do all of this work, invest your life in this work, and even convey it to others, which is what Paul is telling us here today, and be okay with not seeing a visible, visible product of all of your labor. To put in all this work and be unsure if it's even working at all. Uh, to speak and to counsel in controversial ways that go against the grain of society and how you and I think. That's hard work. Uh, it's more than small talk. 
right? This is a matter of life or death. It's, it's, in, it's not inconsequential to the people that we speak it to. This is of ultimate worth. There's always more questions to answer, waves of discouragement to endure, your own doubts and fears to wade through in the scriptures, all while helping others. This work of Christian ministry, conveying this truth to those in our lives, is hard work. The ministry that you and I undertake, Seven Mile Road, is hard work. So Paul is saying to Timothy, this is hard, laborious, uh, toil-enduring work. Stay focused. Work hard. Don't let up. Do your best. And now as you do your best, you can hear that. And you can hear that and feel inadequate. You can feel that and say, what if I don't do my best? What if what, if what I produce is not good enough? Listen, as As Paul tells us and tells Timothy to do your best, it doesn't mean that you and I have to compare ourselves with others or fall into despair when we are inadequate for the task, but that we could say at the end of the day, perhaps on a Sunday like today where many of you are serving here at the church, perhaps this week as you do different things for the sake of gospel ministry in your workplaces, in your homes, that we could say at the end of the day, Lord, I know that I'm not all that I should be. I know perhaps I've not done all that I should do. I don't know if they have received my ministry to them at all. It does not seem like I made a difference to my child. It does not seem like I made a difference to my coworker. It does not seem like I made a difference to anybody here, to the people unbelieving, to people believing. What is my work for? And that you could say at the end of the day, but here is my life and here is my best. I'm giving it to you. Would you take it, Lord, and use it? And Paul is saying, do that. We will be inadequate for this work. We won't produce all the things that we desire, perhaps. And yet, in God's word, it says today, do your best. Put your work in. Toil and strive and pour tears and even blood into this thing. It is worth it. Because in the end of the day and on that last day, what are we striving towards to be approved by God? Isn't that what all of us desire to hear and seek? To be unashamed on that last day, knowing that we were faithful to his call. Whatever your call may be, that on that last day, that we might hear that we are approved and that we could stand unashamed before God. Whether on a stage in your home, in a classroom or office tower, that what Paul says is that you would do your best Present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Is there anything better in life to hear at the end of it all when this is over? To stand before the Father with full dignity in our hearts to say, I've given my best. And I've not gone into this life, considered the ministry that God has placed before me in a haphazard, second thought way. But consider this. uh, Being unashamed, And approved then means being faithful today. It means hard work today. If you long to be unashamed before the Father and approved by Him on that day, it means hard work today. The the term approved in this text refers to the process of testing precious metals in the fire. If you're in this thing, if you're bought into this Christian life and in this Christian ministry, can't it feel like that? Like you're in a furnace being burnt up. It stretches you. It, it burns sometimes. It's scorching. It, it feels like you want to tap out and come out of it. But consider a candle must be given to fire 
for it to give out light. Wheat must be ground to produce flour. Grapes, they must be crushed to get wine. And you and I must be tested to be approved on that last day. Paul calls Timothy to do his best as an unashamed and approved worker before God, rightly handling the word of truth. Uh, but then Paul gives Timothy a reality check of the environment that's around him, right? For, for you and I, as we think of rightly handling God's word, as we think of the truth, as we are sitting in a church, hopefully proclaiming the gospel, you'd imagine what relevance is this to my life? And it's, it's as if Paul gives Timothy a reality check of his environment. Reading from verses 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. What has happened in Ephesus is that there are those, among those are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who are spreading a false gospel, spreading a false doctrine. It says that they've swerved from the truth. It gives you a physical sort of picture of swerving away from the road. It says that they've swerved. The language is likened to that of an archer who, who shoots his bow and completely misses the target. And these, these folks who are falsely propagating a false gospel are shooting arrows everywhere, missing the target, hitting and damaging everyone it actually hits. The arrows are flying. People are damaged. And what is the false gospel that they are spreading? That there is no physical resurrection for believers in Jesus Christ. That perhaps if Jesus has risen, maybe that's happened. But for you and I, we've only had a spiritual resurrection. There is no physical bodily resurrection coming for us. The only one was spiritual. And so what we have here on earth is it. This is heaven. So live your best life now. This is it. Live as if this is all you've got. Enjoy it. Prosper in it. Enjoy and enjoy this spiritual resurrection because there's no physical one coming. And so you can imagine what that does for a person as they hear that. If they're expecting a physical resurrection, there is none. And then to consider this life is the only life that there is. What is this false gospel within the church produced? Paul says that it does no good. It says that it's ruining the heaters. It says, Paul says that it leads people to more and more ungodliness. That it's upsetting the faith of some. It's actually in, in the KJV, King James Version, it says that it's actually overturning, upending the faith of many. Their faith being destroyed. And the most vivid description that Paul gives is that it is spreading like gangrene. Uh, you get that picture in your mind. You, you know how, how vivid that description is, and it's very accurate. You hear that at first, and you think it's too exaggerated, but it's not exaggerated enough. At GCM this past week, as we were studying this passage, my wife, as we were considering what gangrene was, explained for us what the spread of gangrene meant, having experience dealing with it and seeing it. Her detailed ex explanation after having a, a belly full of food at GCM was really effective because we were really grossed out by, gr by bad doctrine at the end of it. I mean, it was, it was so vivid that you just, you wanted nothing to do with gangrene. And Paul is saying that times infinity is like what false doctrine is like. 
gangrene, spreading like gangrene. That's the kind of stuff that you cut off when you see it. If it's, if it's active, it's going to destroy and spread to the whole body. This false doctrine is creeping into the church and destroying all that it sees and seeks. Gangrene is the decay of tissue in the part of the body where the blood supply is blocked. That decay spreads continually. Paul is saying that that's what this false doctrine is doing to the church. And if it's in your church, if it's creeping up into your congregation and among your people, cut it off. It's going to ruin you. It's going to end this thing completely. It's that harmful. We've got to get rid of it. And Paul likening gangrene to false doctrine, that correlation gives us a picture of this is no small thing. And it creeps up. It starts small. And Paul is warning us, Seven Mile Road, God has given us 10 years of really faithful unity in the gospel and yet to be alert for for those that would come in, doctrines that would come in and swerve us off track. There is no modern day church or minister that would claim that they are preaching a false gospel. But there are many around us and in our world who have influence, have power, who who have a voice and a platform Many who are saying a very similar thing. There are those who are calling us to live a life of prosperity on this earth now because heaven is now. There are those calling us to pursue what is true for us as long as you and I are happy with it. To pursue that and and truth doesn't matter. But Paul is shouting in the ear of Timothy. He's shouting in our ears today who who are often quick to wander away from the Lord quick to wander away to things that sound better and sound more palatable. Paul is shouting in Timothy's ear and into our ear, into the preacher's ear, into the, into the GCM leader's ear, all of us, parents, all of us, saying that there is a true path and there is a false path. There is a mark you can hit and there's a mark that you can miss. There's truth that can nourish you and there's truth, false truth, that can kill you. It's not inconsequential. There are those who need not be ashamed before God. And there are those who need to be ashamed before God. There are Pauls and Timothys. And there are also Hymenaeuses and Philetuses. Dear friends, what you give your time to, what you and I give our time to, what we believe, what we pronounce and convey to one another, matters. It's a matter of life and death. Words and truth matter. So Seven Mile Road, be watchful, be discerning of how we conduct and live and believe. You hear all that and it feels really weighty. (laughs) It feels like so much that you can't bear it. If we are called to this work, uh, what do we do feeling overwhelmed by this call? And Paul, it seems like he can almost sense it in Timothy, feeling overcome, overwhelmed by the weight of this call to Christian ministry. And this is what Paul reminds Timothy of in verse 19. Timothy. And all, in light of all of that, God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Paul is saying that in light of all of the false doctrine and those who are being overturned in their faith, with all of the weight of this calling to convey God's word rightly, there is both an invisible and visible reality that we must believe, that we, we can see some of it, we can't see some of it. 
the invisible and rea- the reality, the, the seal that is God's firm foundation, the Lord. What is that? The Lord knows those who are his. What is the invisible seal of God's firm foundation? Paul says that the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord will never lose, never lose those whom he's, he's grabbed, those he, whom he has poured his love over. He will never lose them. He knows who are his. And what's the, what's the visible reality and seal of God's firm foundation? That the lives of those who profess Christ will show it and bear fruit. That your life and mine, the, the lives of those in our lives, are good and reliable witnesses of conversion? Are you living a life bearing fruit of one who has been converted? That's the visible reality. The invisible that you cannot see is that God knows ultimately who are his, and he will never let them go. Paul is telling us that the endurance of believers ultimately does not rest on your shoulders or mine. The endurance of believers in this world who profess faith does not rest on the shoulders of our own. And that's really freeing for us. Uh, Some of us who want control, that is not freeing because we want to control all the pieces. And it's hard to give over control to the Lord. But he says, I've got it. Those who I've saved, I will never let go. I know those who are mine. And so in your witness, in your conveying of God's word, perhaps to kids, perhaps to those in your family, There is a sense in which we so desperately want to bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But would you trust the Lord that if they are his, he knows and he's never letting them go. Rest in knowing that the Lord knows who are his and rejoice when their lives bear out with fruit in that reality. Two more quick movements. We'll breeze right through them and then we're done. The second metaphor Paul uses is that of a clean and useful vessel, a clean and useful vessel, reading from verse 20. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Paul is saying that there are honorable vessels Gold and silver, the kinds of vessels that you would use for for the king. It's like fine china type of vessels. And then he's saying there are dishonorable vessels like wood and clay used for menial tasks, perhaps for even getting rid of waste. And he's saying there's honorable and dishonorable vessels, two vessels that you can become. And the only condition for you to be the preferred vessel, the honorable vessel, is by what? Paul says there's one condition that you have to be an honorable vessel. And it's by cleansing yourself, purifying yourself from what is dishonorable, to set yourself apart as holy, as righteous, to pursue that which is righteous and good. He continues in verse 22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Paul is saying run, run fast, like Like Harrison Ford in The Fugitive Fast, escape, flee from all that entangles you, the sin that brings you down. Escape it, flee from it. It's not worth pursuing. Uh, But it's not just that we run away from something. Paul is also saying that we run towards something, something much better. Righteousness and faith and love and peace. 
Paul has just called Timothy to clean doctrine. We just saw that above in the previous passage. Clean doctrine. Now he's calling Paul, calling Timothy to a clean life. Right? What you believe, what you profess, and how you live. He's saying, cleanse yourself. Purify yourself. It's not just good enough to believe rightly and to think rightly. Uh, theology and, and knowledge will only get you so far. Do you know Christ? Then live after him. And Paul is warning Timothy to tell his hearers, remind them of these things. As I stand before you today, I'm imploring you, warning you and me to pursue righteousness and to escape and to flee from all those things that entangle us. It's a warning right at any moment for us because so quickly do we run away again to those things that are unrighteous and unholy and entangle us. An unclean life, hear this, forfeits the opportunity for those who profess Christ to be useful to God. That's the warning here. I'll say that again. An unclean life forfeits the opportunity for those who profess Christ to be useful to God. Let that, let that fall in your heart and, and cause a, a, a right and holy weight. That an unclean life, a life filled with sin and never repentant, that, that God's word this morning says that the, the, the master desires to use a clean and honorable vessel. This morning, the question that comes to our hearts as we see this is what entangles you today? What sin have you ignored for too long? What hatred, what malice, what envy harbors in your heart today that you've not dealt with, that you let sit and linger? Friends, what lustful thoughts and actions mark your life and define your life? Free from it, lest you be an unclean and dishonorable vessel, not just today, but before God on that last day. It's not worth it. Be, be honorable before the Lord. Be, be a clean vessel before the Lord. And finally, as we close out, the third metaphor Paul uses is that the Lord's servant is the other characteristic that we should pursue, to be the Lord's servant. Reading from verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In this last section, Paul calls us to be a, a servant of the Lord. You think servant, you think immediately timid and, and just completely lowly without any strength. He's not calling us to be timid people. He's not calling us to be weak people. Paul is calling us to be gracious people, to be self-controlled people. He even calls us to correct people with gentleness, to be kind and patient people, especially with those who are being led astray, those who are professing and have a pure heart. Paul is saying, pursue them with love and kindness and gentleness, to even correct them with gentleness. Why? There's only one thing I want to say from this last section. The reason Paul calls us to live this way, to act this way in godliness and, and kindness and patience towards those 
who are veering along the wrong path. Why does he say this? Why wouldn't Paul instruct Timothy to shun them and to, and to show malice? Why does he use the language of the Lord's servant instead of the Lord's debater or, or the Lord's bouncer? Why does he use servant, this lowly term? Because through, it says in this last section, through your gentle correction and mine, kindness and through patience, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and that they might come to their senses and them themselves escape the snare of the devil. Would you hear that? When you hear and, and experience folks who are dealing with false doctrine, when they're dealing with believing and, and struggling to believe, veering away from God's truth, I think at least for me, my immediate response is to sort of get my fists up and, and hit away any, any doctrine that I feel is not right. And I'll, I'll get this defensive mode rather than seeing them as those who are struggling, those who are ensnared by the devil. And Paul is telling us this day that these are people, because if you can peel back the reality of what's happening, these are not the enemies. Folks who struggle with doubt, folks, folks who struggle with false doctrine, they are not the enemy. There is, a, there is a, a, an enemy behind them, causing their hearts to veer, causing their hearts to believe something other than the gospel. And Paul is telling us, be gentle to them, be kind to them, be gracious to them. For what if? The Lord uses your gentle correction. What if the Lord uses your graciousness and kindness to bring them and allow them to escape the snare of the enemy and so be saved? What if that was our posture? Now, there is more to say on those who purport false doctrine. We'll consider some of that next week. But for those who have a pure heart, who are trying to seek the Lord's will, who are being led astray, would you consider that while the enemy stands screaming behind them, that's what's behind them. There is a roaring lion, our king and God, standing behind them. And we are with that God. We are with the one who has more power than the whispers and screams of the enemy to pull us away and to entrap us and to entangle us. It is worth it to be able to be about God's word and to pull people away from the snares of the devil because that could mean their salvation. It is worth it. So as we close... Having just come off of a previous section calling us to be athletes and soldiers and farmers, now we're being called to be hard workers and, and servants and to be those who, who labor hard. Uh, what, what should we do with all of this? How do we hear all of this and not feel overwhelmed by this? We say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.16, who is sufficient for these things? Who can carry the weight of all of these things? And Paul answers his own question a chapter later in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, when he says, Christ is sufficient. We are not sufficient for these things, but Christ is sufficient. Would you consider Jesus was the ultimate unashamed workman who perfectly taught God's word. He could stand before the Father with no shame, without any shame, because he perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. Oh, to be approved by the Father, pleased by the Father in that way to say, good and well done, I am pleased with you, beloved Son. Consider that Jesus was also the, the ultimate honorable vessel, set apart and holy to rescue sinners, 
a pure and righteous life that made a way for us to be pure and righteous. That's the most clean vessel that there has ever been, Jesus Christ. And consider, Jesus was the ultimate Lord's servant. The one who was majestic, yet who was meek. The one who endured whips, chains, and thorns of evil men and mocking sinners. This servant who was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that we would escape the snare of the devil and that we would be saved. Listen, Seven Mile Road, Jesus Christ is not just the model for all teachers and those who convey God's word in whatever context or capacity you do that in. But Jesus Christ is also the person who gives us power to accomplish our mission of teaching God's word and conveying it to others. In Christ alone is our hope found. In Christ alone are we held fast and firm in God's hand, for he knows those who are his. In Christ alone do we have the grace, strength, power, and sufficiency for these things. So pursue these things knowing that his grace will strengthen you, even as Paul reminded us in Uh, In the beginning part of this chapter, it is his grace that strengthens us. We are not sufficient, yet Christ is. Let's trust in him. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are weak and lowly. Though we act like we are not often, we have no strength. We have no sufficiency. We have no merit before you. We have no giftedness enough to give us what we need to do this work of Christian ministry. We submit our lives to you. We ask that you would take our our efforts, that you would take our posture towards others, that you would take our desires and our love for you and all of this that is sort of a, a, a convoluted mess at times that we don't know how to make sense of in this life in Christian ministry, that you would take all of our efforts, weak as they may be, And use them for your glory. Because, O Lord, our desire is to on that last day be unashamed before you. To be approved by you as a worker, as a servant. And those who handle your word with dignity. That people in our own hearts might believe it and be saved unto eternity. Help us with all of this, Lord. We need it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Each week as we come before God's word, we're reminded again that The word himself, Jesus Christ, became flesh. He came into this world, and as we've just said, he's taken on death and sin upon his own body. Shed it. You can come forward, take a piece of bread in the cup, make your way back to your seats, and we'll participate in the meal together. Yeah.
received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ broken for our sin, eat this remembering Jesus. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of Christ shed for us. Drink this, remembering Jesus. Oh, Lord, would you enable us to be people who pursue holy living, that we might be able to uh, even not let the death of Christ be lost, 
you did not die in vain, that you died for sinners like us, that we might be saved and turn away from unrighteousness and unholiness and turn to righteousness and living, that we might be with you eternally. Allow us to endure. Help us to hold fast to Christ. He is all that we need. He is all that is sufficient for us. It's in Christ's name that we pray.
Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of hell, can ever block me from. No power of hell. as our blessing and benediction as we go from here. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Let's sing our doxology together. Praise God from whom our blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures, here below, praise Him above ye heavenly hosts, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Amen. Go on mission, go in peace, have a great week.